Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne. Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word story time, 168. We're into February 2024 when we're recording this. It's the day before the Hyderabad Test Match. I like to timestamp that because I have no idea when this will actually be released into the wild, but we thought best to have our ducks in a row and have a story time ready to roll as soon as the Vizag Test Match is complete. I'm in London. Jeff's in Melbourne. Hello to you. Hello to you. More like Hydra. Good. Yes, it was. It was. I've, I've enjoyed some of the stuff over the last few days of like people slating everybody who didn't predict that Tom Hartley was going to take seven for in the fourth innings to win the game. Like everybody who made a comment after the first, uh, the initial part, going, "Oh, this isn't going so well," and then the hindsight genius is coming in four days later being like, ha ha, you're an idiot. Um, that's been entertaining. So let's see. Let's see whether the gift continues to give wherever we are during the second test. Maybe it'll be over by the time this goes out. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I can probably safely say now because there'll be a few days distance between it, but it's been really nice to get an, uh, an understanding and a flavour for what Premier League yeah. fantasy football fans think about cricket on the last 24 hours on our Twitter page, which is always <laughs> always good. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll um, hear from them again the next time that England play Australia mm-hmm. in a home Ashes series in June 2027 yep. or, or the next time England win a high-profile away test match on a Sunday afternoon when they're doing nothing better. Uh, that's good. Good mm-hmm. on them. I, I love the casual fandom. It's, um, it's always always a nice thing to tap into. So you've been bearing most of that, Jeff, but that's fine. That's just, I guess, part of the game uh, when you're making Couldn't podcasts that go out on the internet. That's the nature of it. Well, yeah, look, I think, I think if, if somebody's take is that we're a couple of raging parochialists, then they've obviously never watched the show before or listened to the show before. So I'm not really 
concerned about what they think about it because they will never listen to it again either and they weren't in the first place so it doesn't make any difference to anything. I um, I spent most of yesterday offline as it is because I was involved in the in the Wisdom Cricket Monthly bat testing process. Now, I'd never done this before. Okay. It is just about the best thing you can do in cricket. I was privileged to be there at the Oval in the Ken Barrington Centre <laughs> down in the basement there underneath the bed to stand. What you do is you, you get to have all these brand new sticks, beautiful bats, 30 of them uh, in our possession for the day, five testers, right? And you face about 10 balls with each of the 30 bats. So, you know, you hit 300 balls from a bowling machine, half volleys at 60 mile an hour, just clouting balls with beautiful bats all day. It's I just want the season to start right now. I still think that my... <laughs> I still sincerely believe my Woodstock's better than all the bats I tried yesterday. By the way, I, I don't, mm-hmm. um, I don't think there's a doubt in my mind that the Woodstock is the best bat going around. But still, there was some. I mean, they're all fabulous because they're so um, lightly pressed. Now they're not designed to last forever. They're designed to be brilliant when you're using them. And you know, you get another one mm-hmm. in two years' time or something like that. It's not like when we were kids and you'd buy a bat and it would last for six seasons and, and so on. That's that's not quite how they are these days. But yeah, it was. Um, you know, I feel like I'm in great nick uh, having hit so mm-hmm. many cricket balls. All I want to do is play today, but instead I'll record a podcast about history with you and it's another one of these revisit special shows that we got halfway through last week and talked for so long that we realised we had to do another one. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get through the other half today, but before we do that, I have to touch on the fact that Monkey Hornby is back. Adam, I don't know if you're up to date with this. Does this does this ring a bell for you? Well, he died monkey, a, he, monkey's he, back. I think he died a hundred years ago, didn't he? I read that somewhere um, recently. This is he, he died in 1924, something like that. Yeah, uh, approximately that. I was looking that up earlier today for reasons that will become clear momentarily. But Monkey Hornby, if, if you've listened to the show for for a fair bit of time, you will know that Monkey Hornby played in the 1870s and 1880s. You know, somebody who's who's time. On this earth has passed. He, he, I'm just checking his date of death now. Yeah, December 17, 1925. So we're, we're, we're coming up to 100 years of the world without monkey. But I was just perusing the, um, the live scorecard earlier today for India A versus the England Lions, as one does on a Thursday afternoon to see what was up. And, and imagine my surprise, Adam, when listed at five, I think, having made a duck from five balls for India A, was Monkey Hornby. The name on the scorecard said Monkey... I've shit you not. It said Monkey Hornby. And, and so I had, I had a, a... I obviously did a double take and then thought, okay, one of two things has happened here. Either, either they've put the link to the wrong name, the wrong profile into the scorecard somehow, which would be awesome because Monkey Hornby's getting a game in 2024, or there is some absolute genius of an Indian parent out there who loves cricket so much that they named their child Monkey Hornby. And I'm like, I can't rule that out. This is the, the land of Napoleon Einstein. Mm. And, I, and I, I, I was torn as to which one I more wanted to be true. Like either, either Monkey's getting a game, the original Monkey, or the new Monkey is, 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 is able to get a gig. There's somebody else who's going to bear the name into the future. You can't keep Monkey down. Uh, the nature of Monkey is irrepressible, as we know. So... I hit the link on the scorecard and lo and behold, it took me to the original page of Monkey Hornby, who, as, as we said, died in 1925, was born in the 1800s. 
and somehow, somehow ended up in the middle order for India A today. And it stayed there for a good, I reckon, a couple of hours. Monkey Hornby was playing, or had played. It was already dismissed, unfortunately. And so the ball-by-ball wasn't live at the time. But in the end, Monkey Hornby was replaced. Somebody noticed what was going on and was replaced with Rinku Singh. So I don't know if somebody just went like, R-I-N-K and somehow hit M-O-N-K or something like that. I don't know if there was like an autocomplete issue or something, but for a couple of hours today, Rinku Singh was Monkey Hornby and what a glorious couple of hours that was. Jeff, either way, it's a triumph. Uh, I'm glad you picked it up. I'm glad to know that the Monkey Hornby name is getting a run uh, in wider circles than our live shows. I know Monkey and having his shirt ripped off his back um, was a big part (laughs) of the two shows that we um, made uh, about the 1879 riot episode from late last year. We best get moving. We aren't blessed with loads of time today. It's a revisit special and the game's called... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. Sorry, I was a little bit surprised. Normally it's a longer lead-up. Nerd Pledge, (laughs) yeah, it's a game that we play with the people on the internet who fund this program. They make this whole enterprise sing, but they do that by sending in contributions of currency, a currency of their choice, and a number of their choice. The number is very specific. The number relates to cricket. Somehow. Usually we don't know how. Sometimes we do. Most of the time we don't. Sometimes we get a clue. Sometimes we don't. We have to unravel the mystery. The number today that we're starting off with is 635. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe it was dollars. Uh, it was from Max W. And it was a Daniel Norcross answer about yes. how Colin Cowdery in the final over um, facing out the West Indies at, in 1963 with his arm in plaster was not actually that heroic because he was at the non-strikers end for the whole time. And, and, he, was, and he was right to say that. We kind of did a bit of myth-busting here. Mm. I've just spoken about Colin Cowdery on the previous show with, uh, with Cam actually in reference to Anderson's Six tour of India and Cowdery six tour of Australia in 74-75, which was seriously brave coming back as a 42-year-old facing Jeff Thompson. But, I mean, in context, less brave is him walking out at number 11 at the non-striker's end in the final over of the Test match for had there been a dismissal, it would have ended the match. Thus, there's no real scenario where he would have been facing when they were, when they were batting out for the draw. Yep. They weren't going for the runs. Anyway, anyway, it, it was a reasonable argument from Daniel. The new clue from Max Reed's I was excited and a bit nervous to lose my nerd pledge virginity in Storytime 146. I love Dan's story. Uh, given the unbelievable amount of content, I'm going to make this revisit a half volley. I like that. I love that, Max. Thank you. 635 refers to a test from a nondescript series between India and the West Indies. The original clue, two balls remaining, four results possible, refers to the final day of the third test, which I remember watching at home in amazement. I'll let you figure out what 635 means. Alrighty, uh, the Wanker Day helps you work, rest and play mm. in 2011. Adrian Burratt is opening and um, he made a ton on debut at the Gabba in 2009, which got a little bit of, uh, like there was, I think there was going to be a fair bit of Adrian Burratt celebration during the West Indies series and then Shamar Joseph just became a better story and, and they didn't need to fill with good things that had happened in the past. Burratt Cinderacen was going to do an interview that may yet happen, I think, with Adrian Barat, who who befriended him at one point because he said, you're Barat and I'm Barat, and so we, we, we must be friends maybe one day. Uh, Barat, Al Barat can tell the story about how they ended up with a pair of Sachin Tendulkar's shoes together one <laughs> night in Mumbai. Anyway, um, 
his opening partner was Craig Brathwaite, surprise, surprise, <laughs> who has been around forever, it seems. And they put on 137 together. They both made 60s. Um, at first drop, Kirk Edwards, who... A little reminiscent of Kirk McKenzie, who was playing in the games just gone as well. Makes 86. Darren Bravo, 166 at number four. Powell follows up with 86. Sports betting enthusiast Marlon Samuels makes 61, which is the lowest score in the top six. So everybody makes runs in the top six. The tail don't make as many, but they're, they're 590 all out from 185 overs. More amazing, Adam, is that is that they get through 91 overs on day one and 90 overs on day two. More than the allotment of overs is bold, which in, in, a, in a day of test cricket. Anyway, West Indies bat for four overs into day three. Ashwin's playing in this game very early in his career. Um, he bowls into his 53rd over. Pragyan Oja bowls 48 overs. Sawag bowls. Tendulkar bowls. Coley bowls. Very young Coley at this stage. So... You know, it's a long slog in the field. And then facing 590, India make 482. So the deficit's 108, but a a pretty good job to keep it vaguely within touch. Top six all make runs. Sachin makes 94. But Ashwin, Ashwin comes in at number eight and makes 103. And I knew that he'd made uh, hundreds. He's made four of them, I think, Mm. against West Indies. But I'd kind of forgotten this was only in his second test when he made his first test 100. And I remember him coming to Australia shortly after this in 2010. 12, what's 11, 12? 11, 12, yeah. 12, 13. Yeah. With this reputation of being pretty good with the bat and I th- and they were batting him at six for a while and he, he was playing a lot of nice drives and getting caught in the slips quite a bit and making sort of the odd 20 and 30 and not quite living up to, to the billing that he'd had as being a, a genuine, genuine all-rounder. But anyway, he's uh, he, he makes this 100 in his second test match and then they go on to smash the Windies in the third innings, all out for 134. Ashwin takes four for 34, Oja takes six for 47, so they rip through between them, meaning that India gets set 243 to win. It's doable. West Indies are low on spin. Devendra Bishu, the leg spinner, is mm. doing a lot of work here. Um, bowled 40 overs in the first innings. And they've got Samuels bowling off breaks. He gets wickets, though, Samuels. He gets Dravid out for 33. He gets Sachin for three. Yeah, the I uh, don't know what the elbow was doing at the time. And um, I don't know what he's... He chucked know, it. He, he, he chucked it. Every ball he, he ever bowled, bowled he chucked it. it. We're definitely the quicker ones, um, but um, uh, he might have he might have kept the arm straight for, for some of the others. Get him out to the, the University of phone, WA. He probably went to the University of WA. He was of that generation. Probably, probably a couple of times. He's probably got a degree, probably got an honorary doctorate from there. But, uh, uh, so anyway, Sawag makes sixty at a runner ball. Lakshman. Uh, makes 31 and gets out to Ravi Rampal. This was like a heroic um, performance from Ravi Rampal, the, the, the seam bowler, who's who's running in on a thankless pitch in the heat and belting the ball down. He gets Dhoni out for 13. And then Coley has reached 63. He's taken the score to 224. Remember, they're chasing 230. What did I say? 230, 243. They need to win. They're on 224. Coley's batting with Ashwin. 19 runs to get pretty comfortable and then Bishu gets Coley out, bit of extra bounce, gets caught at backward point 
There's the <laughs> the description on the live comms of this is great for Collie. He looks at the pitch as if a best friend has just stabbed him in his back. <laughs> I'm like, wow, some things don't change, do they? Some things, some things you can set your watch by. Ishant Sharma comes in, who, as we know, is usually pretty hopeless with the bat, somehow makes 10, which means by the time he gets out, they need four to win. They've got eight balls left on the fifth day and they've got Ravi Rampal coming back in at eight wickets down. So... Last ball of the over, Farron Aaron gets an inside edge and Ashwin calls him through for the run. So there's one over to go, three runs to win, two wickets in hand, Fidel Edwards bowling. Varun Aaron is, is trying to hit the ball, but he keeps missing, then he finds the fielders. And finally, the fourth ball of the over, uh, he gets a run. Marlon Samuels fumbles the ball, hard to believe that. Two balls left, which means that at this point... India, with two balls to go, they could still lose both wickets and lose Mm. the game. They could score two runs and win the game. They could lose two wickets while running one run and, say, getting run out coming for the second and tie the game. Mm. Or they could bat it out and draw the game. And so with two balls to go, Ashwin on strike, he plays a conservative sort of shot. He sort of looks to push the ball into the leg side but doesn't play an overly attacking shot. Can't get a run but he's taken the loss out of the equation. He's meant that they can now try to win the game without any risk of anything worse than drawing the game. So he could still tie it if he got dismissed off a wide, I guess that's possible, and then the number 11 got out. But the last ball of the game, he heaves it down the ground, he tries to run two, he gets run out coming back for the second. Um, India still nine down, scores level, so it's a draw flip and murdered him style, scores level draw at nine wickets down. And Ashwin gets smashed up for, because people say that he didn't run the first. He runs the first and then hesitates before he runs the second and they're like, what, what, why would you bother stopping? <laughs> just just keep going. And he's he, in typical style, shuts it down afterwards and, and says, no, no, the throw was already coming back in at that point and it wouldn't have made a difference and so on. The number was $6.35 and it is $6.35 because it is over 635 is the final delivery when all four results are still on the table. I like that it's the penultimate ball. So I think, um, and if I get this wrong, I'll be disappointed with myself. I'm fairly certain it's from the penultimate delivery that both of the tied tests were achieved. Remembering that, like, you could finish a tied result halfway through day two, right? There's no reason it needs to go deep into day five. It's just that both in 1960-61 and in 1986, both of them went all the way to the final over. Uh, and of course, mm. with Wes Hall and Greg Matthews bowling those two overs, and and the um, and the decisions that'll always be remembered, the run out uh, with Joe Solomon and the leg before wicket uh, from Greg Matthews. But that was on the the seventh ball of Wes Hall's over, eight ball overs, and the fifth of Greg Matthews mm. over. So had it been, you know, with two balls to go, there's some there's some nice juju there. There's some nice energy around the second mm. last ball of a, a test match and the tie still being on the table. That 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 feels like the least rewarding. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. I was going to say the least rewarding from where it was because had India gotten over the line, that would have been yeah. I, I suppose no. There's no bad result from there, right? It's a great Test match, regardless. But you know how, hmm. what you would give for a tie. I'm sure you were in that boat, Jeff, at Brisbane last week. Oh no, you weren't there, were you? Barat was there. You went at the ground. Hmm. Um, I, I can I can imagine that Barat would have been thinking, I'm a chance of seeing a tie here with three thousand other people at the Gabba. Did we ever get to the bottom of why there was no hmm. one there? It was to do with how hot it was and how humid it was. I think. 
was the reason they they advanced. Anyway, I don't I don't think you can really claim that for Queensland. If you live in Queensland, <laughs> yeah, you know it's going to be humid, and, and then um, you say it's too hot outside. And there was some there was some sport. back and forth on Twitter about why aren't why aren't people being as critical of Brisbane and Queensland as they are of Perth and WA? Well, the short answer is it's far more fun when WA and Perth cop mm. brief because they lose their fucking minds. That is enjoyable. Less of a trope with Brisbane and Queensland, so it's you know it's it's, yeah. it's a thing, but it's it not, was still shit. Ass. It's still shit. It was shit. But, but it's uh, yeah. but it's funnier when it's Perth because they they um, mm. not all of them, not all not not all West Australians lose their In fact, um, a small minority, really. a minority really, but a very vocal minority yeah. of uh, nativists yeah. um, lose their shit, which is funny for us. Well, anyway. Brisbane, as, as we've referred to before, Brisbane is the place where I went and hand counted the yes. crowd on day five of the New Zealand game <laughs> some years ago. Far less eventful that day five, though. That day five with 800 people, yeah. there was um, there's a fair bit more going on here. And, yeah, had it been a tie yeah. with 3,000 people there, it would have been noteworthy for the wrong yeah. reasons. Anyway. One uh, one last little point here. MS Stoney's post-match interview uh, particularly enjoyed this snippet from after that game. Uh, he says, The final day was superb. And we would have forgotten the first four days, which can be called boring to some extent. I would love to see wickets turning this much on the first evening so we don't have to wait five days for the excitement. <laughs> well, <laughs> ask and you shall receive. Quite, quite. Didn't take long. There's, what, five or six more years of the of that era of Indian pitch and then obviously everything changes. Mm-hmm. And who knows, we might be re- releasing this after a, a heavy, heavily... Uh, a highly scored uh, game at, at Vizag, and this might sound silly, but on the basis of what we're hearing out of the um, uh, the camps uh, before the game, is that mm-hmm. you know they've, they've been trying to desperately keep the moisture in to ensure that it doesn't end up turning into a complete wild experience on on morning one, like we had at a indoor last year. Time will tell. Well, you know, time mm. has happened. This is this is the um, parallel universe that we're in again. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. All right, you've got a number, Adam, from Peter yes. Roberts. It came in in Swedish krona, 78 Swedish krona. Your first answer was Spiros Economopoulos, yep. uh, the AEK, the Athens goalkeeper, who also played cricket in Australia as a youngster. Uh, Peter says, thanks for the cracking story of Spiros from Kayama. Finally, we're going to get the pronunciation <laughs> right. It wasn't the story I had in mind, which involves a cricketer who dabbled in football and played at test level for two countries with very different climates. I'm pretty sure he's the only person to have represented both, but it will struggle to top the story you found. My first thought was that Spiros might have taken the field against Andy Gorham <laughs> as AEK played Rangers in the last round of Champions League qualifiers in 94. 
But Spiros didn't make the squad, oh. much to my disappointment. That really would have been a top piece of history. It would have been. I mean, where to start here, Peter? First of all, I'm staggered this wasn't correct. With the 1978 AEK premiership that our man Spiros played in and the interview we found, it just lined up perfectly. Even the 78ers, the Mardi Gras link was working with the other, um, mm. the other Spiros Econopolis. Um, Econopolis, sorry, I'm missing one. Econopolis. One bit in that. One, um, what's the word I'm looking for? One um, syllable? Sil- uh, yeah, one syllable. There you go. Uh, anyway, I'm, syllable. I'm glad Peter liked it. So, 17 players have turned out for Test cricket for two nations. But it's really been in clubs. I found this interesting. Billy Midwinter, who I compared mm. myself to on the Daily Pod today, saying I'm available to play for England if they want a tall yep. spinner. In the 1880s, Billy Murdoch, Billy Murdoch. In, the, in the 1890s, with JJ Ferris, Sammy Woods, Frank Hearn, yep. Albert Trott, all very familiar names to long-term story sure. time listeners. Frank Mitchell in the 1890s, he was the original who went from uh, um, England to South Africa in the 1912 Triangular. I'm pretty sure we spoke about Frank during the World Cup. But then nobody until the Nawab of in 1946. So he returns to India as a much older cricketer, having played famously for England in body line before the war and a couple of other matches. I think in 1939, I've got a feeling, was when he played his most recent test cricket, but then came back as an, an older right. fella. Then there are three Pakistan-India crossovers around partition, which yep. makes sense. So Gul Muhammad, the famous A.H. Yep. Carter, who was Pakistan's first captain and biggest figure in Pakistani cricket, probably all the way up until Imran Khan, and Amir Alahi, who was the other of that trio. Then you've got to jump from the sort of the early 50s to the early 90s, another long gap of 40 years where you've got John Tracos in, in 92, Kepler Vessels in, in 92 as well. So there's two there around the time mm-hmm. of South African readmission and, and Zimbabwe becoming a full member of the ICC. And there, around both events, you know, South Africa back from the wilderness and Zimbabwe becoming a test nation. So there are all these sort of reasons why, I suppose, there are, there's a lot of yep. back and forth. Then there's a, a 22-year jump between Kepler and Uptown Boyd, uh, Boyd Rankin, playing uh, that test match at Sydney in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've uh, only got to go to last year where there was two more, where Gary Balanche and PJ Moore, who made the move from uh, Zimbabwe to Ireland and Ireland to Zimbabwe. No, England to Zimbabwe, sorry, in the case of Balance and PJ mm. Moore, who went from yep. Zimbabwe to Ireland. So, again, another long gap, more than a decade between Boyd Rankin and the two that made their test debuts for their second nations last year. But there's one I've, I've missed in all of this intentionally to come to it now. The only player to represent these two nations, and we've done the story before, but we'll do it again here um, in a bit more detail, Sammy Gulliam. So, Sammy made his West Indies debut in 1951-52. He played five test matches there, and then he played three for New Zealand in 1956. So this is a reference to two unusual countries being paired right. together. So we, we've touched on him a little bit in the past. He was a, a right-handed batter and a wicketkeeper, born in Port of Spain from a family of cricketers. His dad umpired test matches, Gulliam. So his first five test matches all were played uh, in the 51-52 series in Australia, neither here nor there. He wicket-kept in Australia, didn't do particularly well, and he was picked off very little cricket. He'd only played half a dozen first-class games 
uh, before he got his chance for the West Indies. Plays a couple more test matches in New Zealand, gets a half century in Christchurch. So that was the series where the Windies went from Australia to New Zealand on the same tour, which made sense given they were Mm. still going by boat and it wouldn't have made a lot of sense to have made a a second journey to uh, that part of the world. Yeah, they did a few of those, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. Stopping off on the way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're back when touring was a much longer, intricate process. Um, so he makes a 50 in Christchurch, and look, that's it, really. That, that's pretty much where it was going to stay for Gullion, at least as far as what we thought his West Indies career was likely to be. But he moved to New Zealand. So my understanding from reading an obituary is that he moved there as much for football as he did for cricket. He was playing in the top-flight comp for Canterbury. They were runners-up in the domestic New Zealand football tournament in 1954. Right. And... Just like Spiros, by the way, he's another one of these goalkeepers, wicketkeepers. So it's a, like, a fairly mm-hmm. um, interesting subset how many players have done that. But uh, Gullion fits into that. So it's all kind of meant to be. But in 53-54, that's when he hits his straps in New Zealand domestic cricket as well. He averages 59. He makes a couple of centuries. They're his first centuries yep. in first-class cricket. And then when the West Indies return to New Zealand in 1956, who better to pick to keep for New Zealand than the bloke who played with that side on their previous tour four, four and a half years prior, and he's back in Test huh. cricket. So he's playing for New Zealand, throw, plays three matches in that trip, and that's it. And New Zealand did win uh, the final Test match from a Gullian stumping. So his last ball in Test cricket was a stumping right. that he executed. So a nice end, a nice full stop. <laughs> he plays against Australia in 56-57 for New Zealand, but they're in the unofficial test era. So the, the last test matches mm-hmm. themselves were in the previous summer. And that doesn't amount to much either. He, he's still running around in the Plunkett Shield until 1961. He makes three centuries at first-class level, an average of 27, nearly 150 first-class dismissals as a keeper, 16 of those in his eight test matches across those two nations. There's a nice link to the World Cup last year, Jeff, which I'm sure you remember. New Zealand, where Logan Van Beek was born, he's also gone on to play for two different countries in two different sports because Van Beek was a a New Zealand under-19s basketballer. Now, of course, playing for the Netherlands uh, and doing a great job. He, he got them into that World Cup last year through an extraordinary performance in mm. Super Over, taking Jason Holder down and taking 30 runs from that. And Logan Van Beek is the grandson of Sammy Gullian. So, um, and, and yes, I like the fact that they've both been two nation right. types. Uh, so it's in the blood. Yeah. And we know that Logan Van Beek can dance. We've seen that viral video that everyone posted whenever yeah. he took a wicket or made a run last year. So if he has kids... Van Beek this is and like if he can dance he can probably yeah. do some other things he probably doesn't do too badly on that front I don't know maybe like the Netherlands and Pakistan <laughs> would that be the next combination so we've gone you know West Indies yeah. to New Zealand New Zealand to Holland Holland to take your pick what's the mm. next unusual combination mm. we can get okay yeah like if we can if we can say you know introduce him to a nice Bangladeshi woman for instance, and, and yeah. get them paired up and then get the kids playing for the Tigers. You know, I mean, how, how many countries can we collect? Maybe if there are multiple children, they could go for multiple countries. Yeah. You know, South America's a burgeoning hotspot. Get yourself into the – get one into the Chilean team. Um, <laughs> link one up with Roberta to play for Brazil. You know, yeah. why not? There are there are possibilities on the table. The, the, the world is a big place. Yeah, I, I guess this was specifically about – 
test playing back and forth, and the Dutch don't play test cricket. So, well, not yet anyway. Not yet. So if, uh, if Van Come Beek on. can push to get gotta, test status and full member status for the Dutch and become the 13th yeah. nation, then there might be some chance that he plays and thus this um, tradition yeah. can continue. If he can, John Tracos, and if he can like hang on to 42 mm. or something and, and finally get them across the line for test status and play in their inaugural test match, you know, and then and then father several children that he can scatter across <laughs> the globe like dandelion seeds. This is this this is the way. This is the way forward. It might require him also going back to New Zealand and playing cricket for them. So he played 19s basketball. I think he played 19s True. cricket as well. He's definitely played first yeah, class cricket right. in the New Zealand system. He certainly played age group cricket. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was 17s, but yeah, he yeah. he he did he did New Zealand rep, I'm sure. All right, our third number for today. And by the way, I have no idea what the 78 is, but I'm sure that uh, Peter will tell me at some point into the future. It's certainly the right answer. Uh, 1070 is your next one up today, Jeff. It's for Raphael Zuma. Jeff, you originally Schumer. talked about the uh, the Wairapa wipeout. There are my TV shucking me right out of my veins. Anyone who um, uh, loves Craig Emerson will know what I'm talking about there. Um, when they were all out, for 70 in one of those New Zealand unofficial tests that we were discussing before, although this wasn't that. This was a tour game in 47 where Australia were there playing the unofficial test and Davo took 10 for 29 at one stage in an innings. And, uh, Jeff, you you told that story, but it wasn't correct. Raphael uh, tells us that he finally got around to listening to the the best possible war. I think that was recorded in the middle of last year. Um, I love the story of utter bastardry but wasn't quite what I had in mind. If you want to have another punt, my number related to a surprising series played two and a half decades later between a team that had won an inaugural competition and a somewhat less heralded nation who had just joined the club. Jeff. Okay. Okay. Now, this is interesting. Um, first of all, uh, pretty unimpressed that my answer wasn't correct because I think the original clue was something about uh, a degree of ruthlessness being displayed. And I thought, you know, 1070, Dave, Alan Davidson taking 10 for and making 70 to beat up a New Zealand touring side <laughs> in the space of a day and a half had to be a great shout for that, but not the case. The, the other great thing out of this, though, is that when I was first looking this up, trying to figure out the answer to this one, it was while I was preparing for the live show with Barat in Adelaide, and I knew vaguely that he was looking at something to do with cricket in the islands near Papua New Guinea, and he ended up giving that long answer about Trobriand mm. cricket from the Trobriand Islands, which is fascinating in its own right. There, there's there the the film that he was talking about from the seventies you can find on YouTube. There's like a full length, you know, seventy minute feature documentary on Trobriand cricket. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. But anyway, because he was looking that up, I started looking up Papua New Guinea cricket and because I was looking for the first official game played by a Papua New Guinea team. Mm -hmm. They played a game against an Australian 11 in 1972, but their next formal fixture was in October 1975, the month after independence in 1975. And I'd I'd looked this up at the time and, and I'd been... I'd been very surprised and, and, and struck by what had happened, but it didn't end up working out with the answers we were doing. So I left it aside, and lo and behold, two weeks later, or, or a week later, when when we were working on this revisit show in the first place, this comes up and is the answer to the question. 1975, when the West Indies dropped by to pay Papua New Guinea a visit. And, and again, it's that idea that the Windies are already kind of vaguely in town because they're playing Australia in a test series in 75, 76. So they go there en route to Mm -hmm. Australia. I mean, this is an extraordinary coincidence and a staggering time in Papua New Guinea's history. I mean, the 16th of September, 75 is their independence 
but their history before that, right? There's so much here. So, you know, they were a, a, a territory from 1914 when it was captured from the Germans. That was confirmed at the Versailles Conference where Billy Hughes was there for Australia, saying it was, it was as essential for Australia that they keep Papua New Guinea as it was that we have water. And I think the idea was that they needed a protection, a bit of protection from the north, and, and they thought that would serve as a buffer. Right. Then there's the twist in World War II where Japan capture most of it, but they kept at bay on the Kokoda track, a story that I'm sure most people will know well. Then self-government in 1972, which I think is probably why they played their first game in 1972. That's when Andrew Peacock's the foreign minister. This is um, before the change of government in later 1972, so one of the final acts of that long conservative government. Then one of the final moments of the Whitlam government in the final months anyway was when PNG gets their independence and only a month after that independence there's the East Timor disaster over the border, same piece of land broadly speaking. The 16th of October 1975, a week before these matches are played, is the um, the time of the Balabo Five murders as well. So, I mean, to right. say this is eventful is to say the very least. This is an extraordinary time for the Windies to have been swinging through that that part of the world. And yeah, you can pick up the cricket, Jeff, but I suppose that's the wider context. Yeah, Christ, and and you know one of one of the great injustices of Australian political history, one of the great failings of successive governments of doing nothing about the Bellabo Five murders over the course of many administrations and it's just a, an epic act of diplomatic cowardice that we saw from decades and uh, there's never been an appetite to look into it or to mm. be honest about what happened and about Indonesian troops disguised as militia murdering those journalists who mm. were documenting the invasion of, of East Timor over there. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, Shirley Shackleton died only a few months ago, I think. Greg Shackleton's widow, uh, who, who was one of the journalists, murdered and she spent her life trying to get justice and, and never got it. Um, but she was a, a wonderful fighter and, and put in everything she had for the decades she had left. So that's the context. That's the, that's, that's the background of, um, you know, it's in this context that West Indies are rocking up to play, first of all, a 25-over game in Ley. You'll know about Ley if you've studied your World War II history. There was a lot of movement around that part, that town on the coast. Mm. And then they play a 40-over game in, in Moresby. And it's a serious West Indies team that rocks up here. Gordon Greenwich, Desi Haynes, Alvin Kalacharan, Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, Derek Murray, Keith Boyce, Bernard Julian, Van Benholder and Andy Roberts all from the World Cup winning team. Yeah. They've all rocked up. So the only player missing from the World Cup win is Rowan Canai. Um, and his place has been taken by Lawrence Rowe, who is, you know, the new absolute gun. And there's a bowling shuffle at one point. So, so Van Bidholder misses out on one of the games in PNG and Lance Gibbs plays the other <laughs> game. So this, this is all-star all star West Indies stuff. Yeah, right at the very end of Lance Gibbs's long and illustrious career. 309 test wickets was the leading wicket taker in the world when he called it quits and there's video of this so yeah. extraordinarily you can find video sort of highlights packages and so on of, of some of the games not official highlights but somebody's wandering around the boundary shooting bits and pieces of footage and who's interviewing who um, it's it's quite a white Australian affair in terms of the organization like who's running things and who's directing people but but um, but some of the PNG players are Papua New Guinea players uh, genuinely and 
you know, th- there's there's this like whole mashup of people who've come down to watch the game. You've got this very white Australian bloke doing the, the voiceover at the ground going, um, Gordon Greenidge. Greenidge. Uh, Gordon mm. Greenidge. And um, and there's a point where he, he calls the wrong player as having been dismissed when Greenidge and Haynes are, are batting. Which calls it, um, he, he calls it as Richards having been dismissed. He goes, Vivian Richards. And then you can hear in the background I think it's, going, it's, I think it's, I reckon it's Haynes. I reckon it's Greenwich and Haynes. He calls one of them as, as, as being out. Right. But, um, yeah, some, somebody pops up and corrects him and he's, he has to do the correction on the mic. Richie Benno's there to greet them at the airport, which is interesting. So he's doing like a little tarmac doorstop, you know, telling them about where they're going and so on. And Clive Lloyd saying that, you know, as a... Uh, as a, a group of relatively recently independent island nations, they want to support a new nation finding its independence. And, and so, you know, they, so they play this game. Now, if you looked at the scorecards, like if, if, if I had the scorecard and you didn't, and I said that Papua New Guinea made 115 for eight in 40 overs and then bowled out the West Indies in 31 overs you would be thinking, like, this is one of the great boil-overs of all time, right? Mm. They've bowled out the Windies. The only problem is that the West Indies were allowed to keep batting after reaching the target so that they could get some batting <laughs> practice in <laughs> and so that the crowd had some more to watch. So it doesn't record how quickly they knocked off the 116 they needed to win, but they were all out in 31 overs for 201. Right. <laughs> so... So they were going at a clip. <laughs> they'd, they'd obviously made 116 in, I don't know, what, 20 overs or something and then kept on bashing. And then it's similar in the shorter game as well. Papua New Guinea make 107 for three in 25 overs. West Indies make 177 for eight in their 25 overs. So they just keep batting and bat out the full allotment. And, you know, going at a, I guess... Not that much over a runner ball, so they're not absolutely thrashing everybody, but it's still a fair bit of a thrashing. But the full side rocks up, and they were there. Like, you've got to give them credit for showing up. All right, next up for me, 114 Guy Hornsby. Uh, it, the clue originally was about second chances, and I uh, talked about Liam Finn, second chance. Not quite sure how or why I did that, but it's a nice song. Uh, Brendan Nash making the most of his second chance. I love that there was a lot of attention around Brendan Nash at the Gabba last week, rightly so, for his extraordinary two-country career as well, albeit one that was state cricket and playing for the West Indies in the early 2000s. And Damien Martin, his 114 being his second chance at test level and the, the best example of that was when he made his 114 at Nagpur in 2004. But none of those were correct. Jeff, uh, what's Guy got for me? The 114 relates to a record in test cricket from a county hero of my 20s who deserved many more tests but got his second chance and made the most of it only to be discarded again. Very 90s, 2000s. <laughs> I'm told it's no longer the record in case that confuses things. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, for this, I think, uh, well, Guy has helped me along sufficiently to know I was looking for a number of test matches between appearances, 114, and that's... Didn't take long to establish that he was talking about. Martin Bicknell, who I first remember watching playing in those baseball outfits in 1990-91 in the Tour of Australia. He was one of many getting hammered by Dino when he made his 145 uh, at the Gabba. Indeed, all of his one-dayers came then as a youngster. I think he's 20 then. All seven one-dayers were on the Tour of 1990-91, but he never made it back into the one-day team after that, and he didn't play a test there either. Mm. So... 13 wickets at 27, going at fives. Any any bowler would, would take that now, but the game was a bit different then. Got his test debut at Headingley in 1993 when England were, were totally falling apart. 
and um, took one for 155 on Test Taboo. Um, we spoke about mm. Alan Borders, 200 not out uh, last week in our first part of the revisit show from that innings. And yes, that was that was Bicknell's debut. 50 long overs for him at the bowling crease for that one for 155. Went a little bit better at Birmingham, three for 99 in his second Test match. Steve Waugh, a pretty good wicket to have in his pocket there. But that's that. And you assume for all money, that's it for him because... A lot of players that got mm. rotated through against Australia in those years never never saw the national team again, but had such a wonderful career at Surrey and became such a consistent bowler there um, that he earned a second chance. Guy's first clue. So in 96, Bicknell took 66 wickets at 24, then 44 at 27, 65 at 20, 71 at 19, 60 at 18, 72 at 21, 34 at 31. That was in 2002. But then in 2003... Another 50-wicket season when he makes his comeback at age 34, some 13 years after he started his international journey in Australia. He's in the Test side. 114 Test matches had elapsed between his last Test in '93 and when he was picked again against South Africa at Leeds. It's a bit of a fairy tale. Second ball back in Test cricket, he gets um, Herschel Gibbs caught behind for a duck. At that point, South Africa a two for two. South Africa win that test match, but Bicknell outbowls a young bloke called Anderson, who you might have heard of in his first mm. summer. When we were, we just had a bit of a snafu with our recording then. In the middle of it, I got a message from Daniel Norcross that I'll read to you, which is relevant to, to Anderson. Um, where are we here? Um, how excited are you about the possibility in 20 years' time of getting a debutant alongside Ryan Ahmed? to Alex Stewart in a single step via Anderson from uh, 2044 to 1990 in a single step. Uh, and, uh, yes, um, that's um, that's quite nice given that Anderson made his uh, list day debut uh, against Derek Randall, as we talked about on Storytime a couple of months ago. Anyway, circle of life and all of that. So, yeah, that South Africa series, the second test in that run or the last of the series, they beat them at the Oval, Bicknell's home ground. Um, he takes Forfa in the second innings. That includes Graham Smith, and he runs through the lower order, takes six wickets for the match, 10 wickets in that brief return to test level. Uh, and most importantly for him, after three losses for England, he finishes with a win on his home ground. So his final appearance is a positive one. 1,061 wickets at 25, a superb career that ran until 2006. Took 1,026 of his first-class wickets for Surrey, and that's extraordinary when you consider that that could probably never happen again for one county or one club. We spoke last week about the probability of a bowler taking a thousand in any configuration is quite quite mm-hmm. slight, given the way cricket now works or four day cricket now works. But um, Bicknell doing it all for Surrey when it was possible these days spends a, a lot of time getting in arguments on Twitter, including with me. I think he's blocked me, blocked him. Who knows? But great bowler, uh, um, <laughs> great bowler. <laughs> Martin Bicknell, uh, and I'm glad he got a, a return to the England test side after 114 matches away for Guy Hornsby. <laughs> Andy Caddick never blocked you and you told him to fuck off. Yeah, true. Uh, I get on quite well with Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I mean, well, at least he got a win as well. There'd have to be a stat floating around about who's played in the most England tests without winning one and so on. Um, yeah. There'd be some... Some some unwanted records in there. Very yeah. good. Uh, there you go, Guy. Next up, we've got Xavier Beauchat, or as we like to call him, <laughs> Xavier the Handsome Cat. Yeah. Uh, with five dollars flat, uh, it was it was something about it was the most of one mm. without any of the other. And you looked at Chetan Chauhan, <laughs> the king of half centuries. <laughs> 
opening the batting with Senor Gavaskar at 1650s and no hundreds. But Xavier said, not it. No, he said, just heard your stab at my poorly worded and confusing clue. Don't be harsh, Xavier. It was a good clue. I'm on a midnight bus from Houston to New Orleans as my wife and I are travelling. I love that. The number probably should have been 113 with the same clue. The 500 is relevant to the same player. And that original clue read, the most of one without the other. The clue focuses on two formats. It's 113, but the 500 is relevant as the same player was the first to achieve this type of 500. So I think I took the 500 to mean 50 and that's how Mm. I got into all of that. Just one stat about one without the other from Samo before you go to your answer. During the pandemic that he popped this on Twitter, using the 113, there were 113 days without first-class cricket from the 16th of March 2020, which was the longest gap between first-class days since 1944 when there were 172 days that weren't played on consecutively between the 11th of April and the 29th of September. So that has nothing to do with your answer, Xavier, but I thought given you were talking 113 and there was a Samson Mm -hmm nugget to throw in it was the, the right time to do exactly that now over to you jeff very good okay well so so that that original clue was a slightly cleaned up version um and it it was it was a little confusing i'm gonna i'm gonna cede that point <laughs> xavier and and there was some confusion too about when the pledges came in and when the clues came in and which clue arrived when and how that might pertain to the numbers that we were trying to deduce um whether they were numbers that might have changed since uh, it was all getting quite confusing for a while. This took some some untangling. But a hunch that I had, because one thing you, you might have heard if you listen to the World Cup Daily Show, something I talked about a fair bit, was my disbelief, my, my inability to believe that David Miller had never played a test match. David Miller being such a fearsome striker of the ball in the South African middle order in white ball cricket and never will play a test match because he retired from red ball cricket years Mm. ago to do the white ball circuit around the world. So I figured we might be talking about the most games played in a limited overs format without playing a test. And I was looking for 113. The problem here was that David Miller played his 113th one day international in 2019. So it can't be that. But the, the following thing intrigued me, Adam. 113. We got the clue about 113 in October 2023. And, oh, good, there's some dogs fighting under the balcony as well. <laughs> in October 2023, David Miller had played 114 T20s for South Africa. Right. So I thought, I thought given the clue was a shambles, <laughs> am I... Am I willing to speculate that this number's just one off and that it's actually supposed to be 114? And I thought that was actually a pretty pretty convincing possibility at this stage right. of time, that he'd played 114, not 113 T20s. They'd been miscounted somehow and he'd never played a test match. And so it got me curious, was 113 T20 internationals the most ever played without a test match? Yes, it is the most ever played without a test match or the 114 that it was at the time or whatever it is that he's, he's up to now. I don't think he's played... They haven't played a lot of T20 international cricket recently, so I think he's only played a couple more since then. So, yes, in terms of the most T20s played for a country, there are 10 players ahead of David Miller, and they are Rohit and Kohli for India, Paul Sterling and George Dockrell for Ireland, Shakib Hassan and Mamadullah for Bangladesh, Martin Guptill and Tim Southey for New Zealand, and Mohamed Afiz and Shoaib Malik for Pakistan. So they're all test players, all players with substantial test careers, aside from the Irish players who haven't been able to play many, but they have played test cricket. Mm. So he's got the most, but 
113, even if I was willing to squint and make it 114, I couldn't find anything for the 500. Miller got to 50-50s in list A cricket and T20 cricket. Uh, I think he's close. Maybe No, he's close to it, but not quite there. Um, he's taken 488 catches, not 500 catches. He's played 461 T20 matches across all T20 cricket, so he'll, he'll hit 500 soon probably. Mm. But... I was looking for something that nobody else had done. And then Xavier arrived in our inbox with a confession. He said, it appears my research for this number was outdated. Uh So he'd sourced this from a publication that had written up the number 113 as the most ODIs played without playing a test match. And that was a number credited to Kyron Pollard of the West Indies. The thing is, the number wasn't right. It was out of date even when the pledge came in. <laughs> it was 123 is what Pollard ended up with. He played his last one day in early 2022, so he already had the 123 by the time the pledge came in. The record now for the most one dayers without a test match is 173 by David Miller. <laughs> so David Miller's got it on both counts. Got 20 him. 20 over and 50 over. Chris Got him. But, uh, yeah, if you're looking at records, the most one dayers played before playing a test match is Andrew Simons, who played 94 of them. That's the record for someone who did go on to play a test match. But Xavier said this, the reason I sent in $5 is because Pollard was the first to play 500 T20 matches. That's not T20 internationals, that's all Mm. T20 recognised leagues and whatnot, although your ILT20 games don't count. Haha, so interesting there. He said, I promise I've triple-checked my next number to make sure it's correct. Thank you, Xavier. We forgive you. Mistakes happen. 500 games for Pollard, Adam. He's now up to 645, by the way. He's played so much T20 cricket. And the 500 Club only has a couple of other members. One of them's Dwayne Bravo with 570. And one is Shoab Malik. There he is again with 528. Question is whether Shoab Malik will be getting many more T20 matches. I don't know if you noticed this uh, about 10 days ago in the Bangladesh Premier League playing for Fortune Burrishal versus the Kulna Tigers, the grudge match, the big one. The only over that he bowled Shoab Malik to Evan Lewis with, with Animal Huck at the other end he bowled three no balls, bowling off spin. In did, the he did he pick up on this? <laughs> yeah, he did. Bowling little, little dibbly off spinners. And, uh, and two of them were from what should have been the final ball of the over. And one of those was a, a pie, like leg stump half volley that gets swept for four. And one of them's just uh, uh, tossed up there and gets dumped over long on for six. Okay. So he goes for whatever he went for off the last ball, plus two no balls, plus four and six, so 12 plus whatever the previous score was, off one delivery and goes for 18 off the over. And eyebrows are raised. Let's just say that eyebrows are raised. The owner of Fortune Baruchel says in a television interview that he wants uh, an anti-corruption investigation into the over. Shoaib Malik immediately leaves the league and goes to Dubai. The reporting says that his contract's been terminated. And then about a day later, the owner reverses course drastically, handbrake turn on the fucking freeway, like drop the transmission (laughs) kind of thing, um, and shoots like a sort of hostage video style thing down the barrel of the camera where he says, I have no doubt about the professionalism of Shoaib Malik, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, who has absolutely tried his hardest and done nothing wrong. And unfortunately, this has become a big media beat up. And I'm like, you're the guy who was on TV yesterday saying you wanted him investigated <laughs> and now you're saying it's all fine. And then he says that he didn't cancel the contract but Shoa Malik asked for extended leave and so they hired someone else to come in his place. <laughs> um, all of that went on. And there's, and there's the other question which is um, Animal Hark, the non-striker, 
he's, he's, he's ready to run when the other no balls are bowled, but when the last no balls bowled, he's like five metres behind the crease just watching. <laughs> like he's not... He's standing behind the non-striker stumps at that point, which seems a bit odd as well. Anyway, a fair bit going on in the BPL. Look, this might be a timely moment to say that there are better ways to manage your retirement savings. Um, CBUS superannuation is uh, a better mode of superannuation than the one that's being allegedly referred to there in that moment, uh, in those uh, several no balls. Uh, mm. I know uh, that... See by Super, uh, a, a return of 8.99% on average across its 40 years. They never overstep. birthday this year. They never overstep the mark with how they sell themselves. They tell you exactly what's going on. 40th anniversary for CBUS, 40th anniversary this year of Medicare, important public policy developments. But in the case of superannuation, in the case of sorting out your retirement savings, CBUS are all over it. Fees uh, are, are arranged in such a way that they're only used to maintain your account. All profits go back to members. They've got a strict and strident test on that front. The trustees of CBUS Super are made up of employee and employer representatives uh, putting members right in the middle of what they do, as they have for 40 years now. So get your super sorted at cbussuper.com.au. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, but they will keep their arm behind their, their foot behind the line and they will keep their arm straight when they bowl. They will. They will, as did Glenn Finkeld when he was bowling for the final word 11 in Sydney. Um, he got, got clobbered for a couple as well. Glenn's always been a very tidy operator, and so that was that was the most nervous bit when Glenn got whacked for a couple of fours. I was like, oof, they're hitting Glenn. We're in trouble here. $12.32 was Glenn's number. You looked at Ayabuela Kamane's 12 for 32 in South African first-class cricket about a decade ago. Not it. Glenn said, I was just listening to story time before we were inevitably washed out this afternoon. And not that you were anywhere near it, but you mentioned something from the Sri Lanka-South Africa game that was word for word going to be part of my clue. The key term was four results possible, <laughs> which you mentioned in the Schultz game. But think of four possible results, acknowledging that cricket is a team game played by individuals. It's not one match. The individuals are three all-time greats and one final word favourite. What do you got? Well, the first thing I want to say is Glenn's part of our Nerd Pledge CSI group and he knows that when things get a bit too cryptic, we have we have recourse and he's part of that recourse a lot of the time. So he won't be surprised when a clue as obtuse as that got punted off to um, uh, to Sean McGiven to help me solve it because Sean, I couldn't send it to the group because Glenn's in there, but Sean kindly helped me get to the bottom of this. And he even he was genuinely puzzled. Even he had to read through the clue for about 10 minutes before it clicked as to what Glenn might be talking about. So mm -hmm. my first thought was, all four results with two balls to go. The test match you were referring to earlier back in 2011, mm. uh, but Glenn quickly knocked that on the head uh, and said, instead, okay. and Sean got me to this point, what about this? Four results, four highest scores, right? So the highest score in a draw, Brian Lara, oh. 400, at Antigua in 2004 against England. The highest score in a win, individuals we're talking about here, Matthew Hayden, 380 against Zimbabwe okay. in Perth in 2003, a few months before Lara. Ponting, 242 against India, also in 2003. Lost that. In a loss, the highest ever score in a loss. Freakish are all quite Is neatly it? gripped together, by the way. If you look at it here, yeah, there good. are just 64 days between the 10th of October, which is when Hayden makes his highest score in a win, mm. 
and the 13th of December when Ponting makes his highest score in a loss. So two of these happen within mm. 64 days of each other. Have that, Glenn. And you look at Lara's, Lara's on the 12th, months. the 12th of April 2004. That's yeah. only 121 further days on from that. So the centre of the mm. universe around this clue all happens uh, towards the end of 03 and the start of 04. And with Lara, by okay. the way, he batted well into day three. I used to always think that it was like he, he, he started again on the third day. I know we've joked before that his fourth hundred was his slowest in that, funny that. But, I mean, they batted until after lunch on day three. <laughs> he was just over <laughs> one, 300 on stumps on, on day two. Oh, so yeah. they were fairly committed no, to... No, there was no question about what was happening yeah, in no, that no. game. Nobody had any doubt about it. It was, you know, as we've said on the show before, I admire the pettiness of it. Like, yeah. no, that is my record. I will have it back. But there's another Good side idea. of it. There's another side of it, right? So this was the fourth and final test of the series. And, you know, England were 3-0 up. So they, they kind of prioritise Lara's record ahead of getting, you know, a win against England. Anyway, anyway, anyway. As for the tie, Dino's 210, of course, we were talking about earlier, back in 1986. 400 plus 380 plus 242 plus 210 equals our number. No decimal point. One, two, three, two. A most Finkeldian oh, pledge. And yeah. difficult to see any of them going. I mean, a quadruple ton in modern test cricket, the best chance of that was David Warner but they declared before he had the chance to finish that job. Mm. There was silly talk about Stephen Smith getting a quadruple ton now that he's opening the batting and will have more time, but he doesn't bat at the tempo required to make a quadruple ton. No. Earlier declarations and more time off – oh, sorry – to get more time off between tests is prioritised by teams. Mm. So often they're thinking about if they're that far ahead in the match, how can we finish it in four and get the extra day off for rehab and and recuperation Mm. because they're often playing back to back to back. So usually you've got to, you know, you know, you've got to bowl out the other side twice. The only, the way I can see it happening is if there's, if, if, if you bowled out a side cheaply and you say you're batting before the end of the day on day one and then, and and I'm thinking like one of the probably one of the Indian Wunderkind T20 generation. If you get mm-hmm. like a Sai Sudarshan or mm-hmm. a Jayaswal or a Shubman Gill, who can score quickly. I mean, I'd love to say Rishabh Pant, but he probably doesn't have the concentration to make a score that big. But one of those one of those like super talents who could bat for a couple of days but who could do it at a high enough tempo that's where I could see it happening maybe somewhere like that yeah well well, the 400 chances it tends to be as you say in a huge mismatch when you've got loads of time in the game I mean this is where the the freakish sham northeast 400s even better remembering how far behind in the game they were after the first innings they were like I think Leicestershire made 450 or something like that, but Northeast had enough mm. time to get there and they, they timed their declaration perfectly in a, in a four-day game. And as for a loss, 242, that might be the most vulnerable in the baseball universe yeah. with high scoring. If, if all sides score more quickly and follow suit with England, and I, and I do think that'll happen. I do think this will have an effect on, on scoring rates around the world. So if you end up in like 10 years' time, if four and over is the standard – and, you know, a pretty good day's five and over, then you might end up where a side still does extremely well and loses. So that 242 from Ponting might be under threat. As for a tie, well, we've only had two of them and there was a double ton in one of them, which is rare enough. I mean, Norm O'Neill did make 181 at Brisbane, which often gets forgotten. I reckon people in that tie always talk about Sobers and his 132. Not enough chat about Norm O'Neill and how well he played in the first innings of the match. But, yeah, I doubt Mm. anyone, if there was a, a tie to break the 210 seems improbable. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Out of all those four, I think the one, two, three, two is safe for now unless we have another extraordinary run of events as we did in the last couple of months of 2003. I love it. I love the setup. I love that you solved it. 
I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. I'm going to hit one more before we go, but this is a new number. I thought we'd slide one new number in here for Ben Wilgar, um, who's had a bit of a wait, $6.79 in the Australian dollars. Um, it didn't, as far as I could tell, I couldn't find any cluage in the correspondence. The last messaging was, Ben, correcting your pronunciation of stoic, um, which oh, right. was like a long time ago. How did they get that wrong? Stoic, stoicism, stoicism. Stoic, oh, that might have been why. It might be the, uh, is it? Maybe. Stoic, it's stoicism, isn't it? Not stoicism. So, Sto- sto- stoicism. Stoicism. Maybe you said stoic. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I can't. I can't. Tell, I can't recall that far back. Somebody will remember, but okay. I won't. Somebody will have marked it down in their grievance book. We say a ben lot of words. Know. We get some of them wrong. It happens. We say a lot of words. We, <laughs> totally. That was just, yeah, just amusing that that was the last message that popped up. So six seventy nine. Initially, I looked at it as a test score. It has been made once in Test cricket. Six hundred and seventy nine when Pakistan got greedy in Lahore when they ran up six seventy nine against India in two thousand and six. And the reason I thought I'd throw this in is who should be opening the batting, making fifty nine, but show. Ah, got greedy too. <laughs> may have done, may have done. The everlasting partnership, Yunus Khan and Muhammad Yusuf, put on 319 together. Yunus 199, ouch, and Moyo made 173. And then for good measure, Shade Afridi makes 103 from 80 balls. Uh, Cameron Akmal 102 from 81 balls. And in between those 400s, Inzamam al is out for one. <laughs> so it goes ton, ton, one. Done, done on the scorecard. It must have been a long old time sitting in the dressing room for Inzi. But they declare it seven down and they've scored at a pretty quick clip. They've only faced 143 overs, so they're going at close enough to five and over. Revolutionary. And then Saywag comes out and just does the same thing, but even more so. Cuts absolutely sick in the time available, but they get very little play. They, they kind of get two-ish days of play through this match because there's rain, there's bad light on day two. They only get 15 overs on day three. He and Dravid add 80 runs in those 15 overs because mm. Sawag's smacking it. 47 overs on day four and a couple of overs on day five. And by this point, when they resume, India have, like, the opening partnership is past 400. This is Sawag and Dravid are still there. Uh, just over 400 and they're gunning for a record two final word favourites Vinu Mankad and Pankaj Roy who Bharat Sundarasan has spoken about at length on the show before their opening partnership record of 413 was being was about to be chased down and so uh, so he comes out to Saywag and he whacks a couple of boundaries and then he pokes at one and gets caught behind with the stand on 410. So they fall three runs short. He's just four gone ten. past his... Um, so we, we had the quadruple 410 a couple of weeks ago. This could have slotted in there. Had there been a fifth, this could have been there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Before had Christmas. We, had we thought of it. The yeah. near the near record, it could have, yeah, it could have been um, a fifth answer had we got there. Anyway, he, he's gone past 250 at this point. Um, he's 254 from 247 balls. So it's it's the biggest score to be made at faster than a runner ball. Adam Voge has almost, almost pipped it. He made 269 off 285 against the West Indies, which is the fastest strike rate for a score that big because mm-hmm. it's bigger than Saywag's score, but Saywag's is still faster. But, yeah, probably not that. 679, obviously, only one country has a 679 cap, which is Tom Wesley, which seemed funny given that Tom Hartley is the most recent cap, although there'll be another one by the time this show goes out. And, and then I looked at runs in a career, Adam. None of the women's international formats have anyone who's made 675 runs in a particular format. None of the men's white ball formats do. But in test cricket, you've got Ali Baka, 
for South Africa made that many runs in 22 innings and Jeff Thompson made that many runs in 73 innings and that just got me interested going down a bit of a tangent of Jeff Thompson batting averaged a bit over 12 so he could hold the bat but he's he starts so well I kind of didn't realize just just how good Thompson's start with the bat was 19 not out on debut when he makes most of the runs with Max Walker against Pakistan. Mm. His next test, he makes 23 in the Brisbane Ashes test. Again, with Max Walker, they put on 52, take Australia past 300 in the first innings. Then he makes 24 not out in Sydney, mostly batting with Ashley Mallett, which is another important partnership that helps boost the first inning score. I think they get past 400 in that innings and go on to win the game. And then his first hit in England, just after this, he makes 49, his highest career score. He's a bit like Nathan Lyon, probably finished without making a 50, but made a 47 once. He's elevated to nine in the order at that point. He's got Lillian Mallet after him. And he makes 49 of the 73 runs added after the point that he comes in. Gets Australia to 359. They win by an innings. None for in the in the first innings for him. He doesn't bowl much in his 10 overs. And then he takes five for 38 after the follow-on. And... At this point, he's averaging 33 with the bat in test cricket, having also taken 38 wickets at 20. So this is after seven test matches. I mean, I don't know what they were... If At this point, were they thinking, like, this guy's going to be an absolute phenomenon if you can keep up that, those sort of returns with the bat? Um, it's a pretty remarkable start. But, yeah, he sort of tapers off after that batting-wise, um, starts making a lot more low scores. He does make 44 at the MCG against the West Indies in December 1976. He makes half a dozen more scores in the 20s and um, the most famous, of course, being the 21 in Melbourne. In 1982, Alan Board has come up a lot on the show recently, but the Boxing Day test, England winning by three runs after Australia needed 74 to win when the ninth wicket fell and pretty similar to the the Heading Lee and, and the Kusol Pereira at Durban sort of innings needing to make that many with the last wicket and, and they do it either side of the overnight break mm. going into the fifth day and Border making 62 not out. I remember my dad telling me about going down to that game mm. when it was free entry on day five and, and how it just filled up and filled up as the as the day went on until he was eventually caught of the relay catch at slip three runs short. One of those days where at the MCG where 30,000 people were there and 300,000 say they were. I'm sure your dad's, um, uh, <laughs> I believe your dad, I don't believe a lot of people that say they rocked up that day. This came up yep. on the Daily Show with Cam and me the other day when he, I said something like, had this reached day five with 30 odd runs to get, we would have immediately been talking about Melbourne 1982 and Cam's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, you got to eat your vegetables, listen to story time. That uh, yes, that, that is um, a very famous moment in Ashes history. One of the, the last great Ashes tests played in Australia, actually. There haven't been that many close ones, but Tavarea Miller and the juggle catch off both of them after that partnership that took them so far. Yeah, great highlights and a great era of test cricket. So 21 he makes there. He also made 21 in the 1975 World Cup final when he was trying another mm. impossible heist with Dennis Lilly trying to chase down those runs there and, yep, run out. Um, there's one other. There's just one last little one for you before you go that you probably don't know about. April 1978, Adam, between the fourth and the fifth tests in the tour of the West Indies. West Indies are 3-1 up in the series already. The last test will go on to be a draw. So there's, you know, there's, there's something of substance to the tour games. Like, the Australian yeah. team, they've, they've lost some test matches. They need to win these tour games. They're playing Jamaica at Sabina Park. Good team. Lawrence Rose there, Michael Holding, Jeff Dujon. Jamaica have a 17-run lead on the first innings. They set Australia 233 to win. 
the Australians are cruising 214 for five. Well, not cruising, but, you know, it's within reach. And then Michael Holding starts taking wickets and taking catches. He nicks off Steve Rickson. He catches Trevor Lachlan, Ian Kellen, Mad Dog, LBW. <laughs> and suddenly they're 219 for eight. They've lost three for five. They're 14 runs away. They've got Tomo coming out to bat at number 10. Bruce Yardley's there. And the number 11 is Jim Hicks, <laughs> who cannot bat. Famously, famously didn't get a run on the whole tour of England in under 75, zero runs. Right, exactly. So one out is two out basically at this point and Thompson has to hang in there. He does the job. He hangs in. He makes four not out. They win the game. And guess what? This is in Bobby Simpson's comeback period, obviously, during World Series cricket. Bob Simpson's come back to captain the team in his 40s. He gives himself a chop out, though, for a few of the tour games. Bobby Simpson isn't playing this game. Vice-captain on the tour, Jay Thompson. Ah. Jeff Thompson was captaining Australia when he took them home in a tight run chase with the bat against Michael Holding at Sabina Park. That one's not usually on the highlight reels, but that's where I would like to end story time for this week. Lovely. Tomo was captain. There you go. Well, we, we, yeah. we, we come back to him a little bit. We had that stash, stash with Lawrence Booth about the way his average is depicted in Wisdom uh, and other places. <laughs> that was um, my hobby horse for a while there and they don't round things the way that conventional rounding is done. Um, mm-hmm. We spoke about his one for 100 on his test debut a few weeks ago and now a time that he won a game for Australia in a tour game in the Windies with the bat. Lovely place to end it. That's the end of our revisit special. There are still a few on the shelf. I am mindful of that. We we will try and integrate them into the shows that we do in the coming weeks. We're getting one done per week around the India-England test matches, then Jeff and I together for about a month in Australia initially, then New Zealand for the two test matches there in early March. This has been, what are we, Jeff? As I scroll up to the top of the page, story time 168. Bloody hell. We've done a lot of work over these over the years and wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you to cbysuper.com.au. Thank you to all of our patrons uh, for loyally supporting what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word. That's how you get your number in the queue for Nerd Pledge, but more generally how you open up Discord, join the conversation there, be part of the fun we have playing games of cricket around the world, uh, uh, running the Edinburgh Marathon or Half Marathon for the Mighty Lords Taverners or the 10K, which is still open. If you want to run the 10K, it's a much easier journey. You can probably prep for that in about four weeks, if that, if you're not a runner. Get in touch with Jeff or me as soon as possible. We can register you for that and get you into one of the Airbnbs or somewhere nicer, if that's what you want. All right, I've, I've got places to go. You've got places to be as well, Jeff. You can go play with the dogs that were around earlier in the show. Uh, and we'll do this all again uh, extremely soon, I am sure. Have a nice weekend, or if this is being recorded, um, delivered, sorry, uh, during the week, have a nice week. So you know what I meant here. I had to go. Oh.